Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to uh, Red Eyes TV. Good to have you all here. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Henrik. In case you're new, check out our websites, redeyes.tv, redeyesmembers.com. We go out to uh, all of our different channels out there as well. It's all on the website. So we're kind of uh, kicking up uh, interview season here again. We've taken a break from this, and uh, there's a number of guests I want to bring on the show. If you guys have guest uh, suggestions, do let me know, by the way. Email is on the website. Uh, but today we're talking with Gregory Hood, who uh, finally joins us. I've wanted to have Gregory on for... I mean, some time now, uh, and I'm just I'm I'm glad we finally can sit down and do this, Greg. How, how's things uh, going? Thank you for coming on. Going really well. It's all uh, good problems to have in terms of how much is going on and how busy I am. But that's where you want to be. <laughs> exactly. Best of times and worst of times, as far as the movement goes. That's right. Exactly. So, so if you guys uh, are not familiar with Greg, I'm sure many of you are. Uh, of course, writer for Amron, Vider. Uh, he is part of the Wolves of Vinland and things like that. We've spoken to some of those guys. Obviously, Jared, we've had on. Um, is it, what would you like to say in terms of introductions? Uh, otherwise, uh, Gregory. Well, at this point, I think most people know me for what I've been writing at VDARE and, and American Renaissance. Uh, I've spoken at the last few American Renaissance conferences, and I'll be speaking at the next one. I had a compilation out a few years ago called Waking Up from the American Dream, and I'm working on a book now called Nationalist Without a Nation. And really what I think my role is in all this is as some one of the guys who we all kind of pretend that it wasn't a thing now, but as one of the guys who was sort of in the movement before the alt-right, during the alt-right, and then after, I think that my role in this is to take the people who are coming into the movement now so they can avoid some of the mistakes of the past, but also orient us towards you know what we actually want for a future. And what I've been saying for some time now is we need to have some core ideal. And for me, that core ideal is the forbidden phrase, white nationalism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, kind of. I guess I want to have white nationalism as a theme a little bit today. If there was a... This incredible clip on MSNBC where this came up, it was Tuberville. I'm not sure if you caught that, yeah. but he made... <laughs> the, the controversy with the military. Yeah, the military. We are losing in the military so fast our readiness in terms of recruitment. And why? I can tell you why. Because the Democrats are attacking our military, saying we need to get out the white extremists, the white nationalists, people that don't don't believe in, in our agenda as, as uh, Joe Biden's agenda. Uh, they're destroying it. You mentioned the... Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. What is today's Republican Party, right? What does it stand for? What does it really believe in the year 2023? That's what. Standing up for white nationalists, not just standing up for them, saying they belong in the military. They're, quote, I call them Americans. Just like everybody else, white nationalists, just like any other ideology. It's a Republican sitting senator. He immediately sought to clean it up. I guess you can call it that. His spokesperson said that the senator was being skeptical of the notion that there are white nationalists in the military, not that he believes that they should be in the military. Although, as you heard with your own ears, that is not at all what he said today. When asked by our colleague, Julie Serkin, to clarify his comments, about white nationalists in the military, here's what Tuberville said. Sir, if there are folks with white nationalist beliefs, of which there are in this country, unfortunately, do you believe they should be serving in the military? Uh, we got to define that first. What is a white nationalist? Someone who propagates Nazism, someone who doesn't believe that black and brown you people are white equal. You think white nationalist is a, 
is a is a Nazi. Well, that is one of their beliefs. Well, I, I don't look at it like that. I, How do you look at it? I look at a white nationalist as a, as a, a Trump Republican. That's what we're called all the time. A mega person. That's what do I'm you just, agree that, that, with that well, assumption? Yeah, I agree that we should not be characterizing Trump supporters as white nationalists. The phrase white nationalism, of course, is that everything is white nationalism. Exactly. Right? Believe in like, grammar, that's white nationalist. Showing up on time is white nationalist. Enforcing the law is white nationalist. <laughs> so... I mean, we have to be kind of precise in what we're talking about here. But the way the left exaggerates, I think, is also useful because if you ask a person, well, what what is it that you want? What are the basic things you expect from your government and from the state? They're going to say things like, well, law, justice, order. Well, these things are all pathologized as white nationalism now. So we're going to have to deal with that, whether we like it or not. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, his point was... All I think was good, he went in that direction, but his point was, well, as you say, they call everybody that now. It, it, when, when they have an internal investigation in the military and the in the police to purge white nationalists or white supremacists, we know that that's just a, uh, a buzzword. We know that, that, that that's a way for them to get out their political enemies, whether they actually are actually white nationalists or not. You know what I mean? Right, right. And it's the definition now is so broad that it basically includes everybody. Uh, who was an American president at least before 1965, and pretty much all Americans up until, what, 10 years ago? It wasn't even considered controversial, for example, to have, say, a Confederate flag tattoo or have bases named after Confederate generals or anything like that. These things are now called white nationalists. Well, you can say that, and you can push through some ideological transformation and talk about how important all this is, but the problem is you're not going to be able to appeal to the memory of anybody who was in any of these institutions up until, what, 10 years ago? I mean, how many people in the Army, the Marine Corps, the Navy were Southerners, appealed to the Southern tradition, appealed to the history of the Confederacy and thought that as something to be honored? Now they're being told that that's the equivalent of National Socialism. Well, yeah. if you're going to try that line, then you can't really appeal to the mystic chords of memory or patriotism or the historical memory of these institutions because you basically said that everything until a couple of years ago was completely shameful and hateful. Yeah, it's this, uh, what do you call it, uh, the old switcheroo. <laughs> What's yeah. the best? Like, they always want to have it both ways. Right. Exactly. And, and in a way, it's like if, if they manage to take the ideals that they consider to be to now represent America, right, like diversity, multiculturalism, all that stuff, then they love America, of course. But then there's this constant also harping against what it is or what, it, what they think it was, rather, even if that's true or not. Uh, and I, it feels like they can't have it both ways. Either they hate the country or they like the country. And, and it feels like we're right in that kind of switch now. They haven't really, it depends on if they get full control of it, they love the country and American values as they see it are going to be something that uh, will have to be enforced globally, essentially. They, they've taken over in a way where like these neocons and stuff left off, these liberal, right. liberal progressives, right? Yeah, it seems that the next neocon experiment for democracy transformation is the United States itself. And what we saw in 2020 was the same color revolution playbook that's been used in Eastern Europe. That's right. Deployed against the United States for the first time. There was a phrase I used a few years ago in an American Renaissance that said this was before 2020. And I called it state conquest. And what I was referring to was what happened in South Africa, where the state itself continues. But it's more than a change in government. It's more than one guy loses an election and a new guy comes in and takes over. It's where the very ideological underpinnings of the state 
are completely reversed. So whereas South Africa was justified based on one thing, set of ideals once, now it's being justified on a completely opposite set of ideals. If you were a patron of the old South Africa, you're a traitor to the South Africa of today, vice right. versa. Yeah. Now you essentially have the same thing happening to the United States. And there's no way you can reconcile the legacy of the founding fathers with what the United States is today. It's not just that they disagree, it's that one counteracts the other. And you can't simultaneously say the United States is a paragon of white nationalism and white supremacy and westward expansion was the most evil thing that ever happened and the country was built on slavery in the 1619 project. And then in the next breath say, how dare you question our democracy? How dare you be a traitor? Yes. How dare you appeal to the Confederacy or any of these things? It has to be one or the other. But if you have this transformation, if you say that you're essentially changing, having a revolution within the form, that's what's happening in the country now. And the people who are kind of left behind here are the white conservatives who still think that when people like Joe Biden talk about the United States, that he's referring to the republic that was created by the founding fathers. Well, he's not. I mean, he's referring to something that's totally different. Yeah. It's absurd as saying that, I don't know, a Russian in 1922, if he's fighting for the Red Army, is actually secretly upholding the legacy of the czars. Well, no, I mean, you're actually <laughs> fighting the opposite at this point. Yeah, it is an incredible uh, contradiction. But as we know, it's not, you know, here we are looking for like consistency or morality yeah, or, yeah, I mean, it's not about any of that. <laughs> let, let I me mean, that's the biggest thing is once you control the media is most people don't really have much of an attention span. And if you just kind of keep changing the topic over and over again, people don't really pick up on these contradictions. I remember something that Joe Biden said when he was running for president. He was talking about President Trump and he said something along the lines of, well, President Trump's ideas are closer to George Wallace than George Washington. And I'm thinking to myself, well, George Wallace was getting elected governor of Alabama well after segregation ended. Uh, he changed his views and appealed to a black constituency and kept winning. But even more than that, even when George Wallace was at his quote unquote worst, I'm pretty sure that George Washington was more racist than George Wallace. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that like George Washington's views would be far more unacceptable in polite society than George Wallace's. Right. So if you actually think about what he's saying, though, Biden is appealing to George Washington because he's old enough that he remembers the time when that was the archetypal American hero. And that's who, somebody who we all have to honor. Well, you can't have an America built on diversity and immigration and fighting white supremacy and then in the next breath say, and we should honor the founding fathers. You can't have it both ways. No, no. And the people, there's a saying, you know, we have that the woke are more correct than the mainstream. When you look at the 1619 Project, you could say that there are a lot of lies about American history, but their view of history is closer to what's true than mainstream conservatives who somehow think that, you know, Thomas Jefferson and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X would all be on the same side. Yeah, it, it's true. And they, of course, they recognize in many regards racial differences and things like that, where the conservative is, of course, you know, there's an MLK version of, of uh, well, reality that they want, right. which which is an impossibility. The left, I think, is right in the sense that, like, well, there are racial differences. I think we're better off recognizing the only difference is, of course, that they don't want white people to have any of those things right. that they would grant to any of the other racial and ethnic groups. Right. Right. I mean, their view of history, there could be some exaggerations, but they've essentially got it right. The left does. I mean, when they say that 
the United States was essentially founded on what today we would call white nationalism, i.e. a self-conscious people that regarded itself as a white people and said, this is a country by, for, and about white people. I see you're pulling up the Nationality Act of 1790, which of course limited citizenship to free white citizens of good character. Now, when you have these conservatives who come in and say, well, actually that's not true. This was based on all men are created equal. This was a home for everybody. It falls apart very quickly because if you have any specific knowledge of history, you can rebut that almost instantly. Yeah. So the left, I often find they never actually have to get into a debate about the truth of their ideas because both sides are accepting the premise. Conservatives, white conservatives, are basically the last true believers in MLK's supposed vision of a colorblind society. But of course, you and I know that MLK himself never believed in a colorblind society right. any more than he believed in, say, his marital vows. Yeah. And even when you see things like, oh, MLK would actually be a conservative today, you see conservatives walk into this trap every single year. Well, he wouldn't have been. He was a democratic socialist. He was, he was a very communist. clear about what he believed. Yeah. He explicitly favored racial preferences for his own group. It's all right there. Yeah. You, know, you can say that's good. You could say that, okay, well, he was justified in thinking that, and you know, these are the reasons why we should go along with it. But what you can't say is that he was a Ronald Reagan conservative. <laughs> and conservatives are sort of like, I don't know, Sideshow Bob just like stepping on the rake over and over again, getting <laughs> hit in the face just by saying this over and over when it's completely wrong. And anyone who knows anything about this can rebut it pretty much instantly. Because it's I mean, easy. Thing, it's a, yeah, it's my, easy my to go that this thing, way, right? My, yeah, exactly. My, my big thing to the American conservative movement, because at the end of the day, I am one of you. If you say what radicalized me, it's like, well, the American conservative <laughs> movement, the leadership institute, Pat Buchanan, Mark <laughs> I mean, it's not like some esoteric craziness. Like I got into all that stuff later. <laughs> all I ever did was basically take the American conservative movement to its logical conclusion, which right, is that right. yeah. if you actually believe in the stuff that you say you value, you have to accept these other things. You have to accept that mass immigration has been a disaster. You have to accept that demographics matter. You have to accept that what we today call the paleoconservatives were basically right about everything they predicted in the 80s and 90s. And if you're not willing to go along with those things, well, then you don't actually believe in the stuff that you say you believe in if you're a conservative. And so if you're a conservative and you're wondering why your movement can't win, and you're wondering why your spokespeople just keep falling into traps over and over again and losing in debates with people who, frankly, are not that smart. Well, it's because you're playing a rigged game. I mean, you can't yeah. accept the most fundamental premises of the other side and then act surprised when you keep losing and over and over again. That said, I do think there is a bit of hope um, within. I mean, we talk about the alt-right or the dissident right or white nationalist or whatever else. But, you know, I try to keep a foot in the, the mainstream conservative movement and see how things are developing there. And I think one thing that is kind of moving in our direction is that a lot of conservatives now, um, mostly because of the book, The Age of Entitlement, now recognize that the Civil Rights Act is really the skeleton key to unmaking the entire Constitution and that you can't get anywhere unless you repeal that. And of course, you know, this isn't a fringe thing because the man who, from a conservative libertarian perspective, basically had the Civil Rights Act pegged at the time was Barry Goldwater. I mean, we don't need to go too far to look for people who accurately projected everything that was going to play out. What we have to think about is, well, why did the conservative movement silence 
its most eloquent spokespeople and then act surprised when they lost for 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it, it's true. And it's just it's so it's been so strong, right? That that dominant narrative of whether it's equality or, you know, we're all equal or we all, call, you know, yeah. And so it's so much easier for conservatives to, to just concede on those points and say, well, you know, because, again, it's it's the easy way out. Right. It's also mm -hmm. recognizing that, yeah, the left um, and there's more other you know aspects behind this, but just for simplicity, the, the, the left out there, they have there are on the moral high horse and whatever, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever tone they set, conservatives always have to kind of um, ad adapt to that or, or try to fit or, or try to get their worldview to fit into their uh, playpen essentially, which is a, a losing battle, as you say. It's never going to work. Yeah, there's a lot of moral uncertainty within the American right. Uh, you always get this saying, this thing, it's kind of a, a tick at this point where they'll say things, they'll say some mainstream conservative idea and they'll say, well, I'm saying this without apology. And it's like, well, why would you need to apologize for it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're saying that, you're already sort of conceding that you're doing something wrong. And it's more that it's not that we need to say things without apology or that we're saying hard truths or something, you know, this kind of framing maybe needs to be rejected. What we need to think about is that we're sort of past the point where people on the progressive left, on the egalitarian left, can say these kinds of things that they say and say, well, we have good intentions. I no longer believe that's true. Uh, and this is where I disagree probably with even a lot of people on our side. I don't think people on the left are saying these things in good faith anymore. Orwell no. said in 1984, he had his villain. You don't establish a dictatorship to safeguard the revolution. You have the revolution in order to safeguard the dictatorship. Exactly. Yeah. At this point, I think the reason they advocate these kinds of policies from letting people out of jail to pushing this kind of anti-white hatred in school to diversity and inclusion programs to all these kinds of things, I no longer believe it's because they believe inequality as such. It's because it hurts white people and they think that's a good thing, and they think it's fun. And when you see these sorts of reports of crimes and everything else, these aren't unfortunate side effects anymore. I think at this point, these are the predictable and obvious consequences of policy decisions. And people are seeing these consequences and saying, yes, this is what we want, and we want more of it. And the right needs to take that tone because you have to have absolute moral certainty in what you're saying. Now, if we're gonna confront what's happening, we can't take this line of, oh, well, you had some good ideas, but you're just a little naive, and I'm going to educate you on how this works. No, you're getting what you wanted, and it's monstrous, and we need to call it out for what it is. Yeah, if, if we don't believe it, why would anyone else, right? Yeah. Yeah, like, and even if you, even if you feel, you know, I understand if, like, if you're new into these topics, right? The programming, the 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 weight of of you know the imposed narrative and morality is is heavy. I understand that. Like to go against that at least initially until you can throw off those those shackles. It, it is hard. It's challenging, and that's why many people just don't do it. They'd rather be, stay quiet. They can even understand and know what's at stake. That we're losing our people and our civilization, but they still shut up because they think more of their own, you know, their 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 personal reputation and these kinds of things, right? But at some point, right. yeah, go ahead. There's nothing particularly unique about an elite putting forward an ideology that justifies its own position, and. I think it's very misguided when we just say, well, you know, they're being hypocritical. They're not living up to their ideas enough. No, the reason they're putting forward these ideas is because it allows them to stay in power. And yeah. it's not, I mean, the only thing I will give them is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the only thing which is keeping America going at this point. <laughs> if everybody actually lived up to these ideas, it would be truly monstrous. 
hypocrisy is the only thing that's keeping some semblance of good schools and safe neighborhoods going. But we have to confront it on, in the realm that the idea itself, the idea of egalitarianism itself, is completely wrong. And it is actually kind of insane when you take a step back and really think about it. We all kind of know, I don't think I'm educating anybody in the audience here, that egalitarianism just isn't true. It's just not true. And there's no reason to believe it's ever been true. Yet, why is it that our whole morality is built upon the vision of something that has never existed, could never exist, but somehow it's moral to believe in this lie? You know, John Rawls, who's probably English uh, or Anglo-Saxon, I should say, political philosopher, probably the most influential political philosopher of the current era, used to talk about this thing called the veil of ignorance, where he said that what you need in a society to decide whether you have good laws or not is you need to pretend that you didn't know what kind of a class you would be born into in this society. And so therefore you need to write all the laws. So even if you were born in the most unfortunate or uh, subjugated group, that you would still have a certain amount of rights. But the problem is that's not the way the world works. It's not that we're all like floating in the ether and then we just kind of get popped randomly into a body somewhere. Right. Everything yeah. that happened from the beginning of history until now had to happen exactly as it did for you to be who you are. And our social systems, our governments, our religions, our class structure, all of these things should reflect the fact that we are who we are and that life is about becoming who you are. It's not about you're just randomly put into a body and everything's a question of sheer chance, because I think that leads to the kind of nihilism and selfish individualism that we have today, where basically life is just about getting what's yours and almost getting away with it. And that's the way that people think about life. I think yeah. that you're born into a certain line that you were fated to be part of that from the beginning of time. And your job is to uphold the dignity of your family, of your line, of your country, and to promote the survival and upward development of your people. Like that's what you're here for. And life is about accomplishing greater and greater things, not just like destroying everything that better people created just so you can have some stuff and then laughing about how things are going to be worse after you die, which I think seems to be the ethos of the people who rule us today. Yeah, it's this premise that something is wrong and that uh, hum I mean we do we want to improve things of course, but it's this right. idea that like no, it's, as you say, it's everything is just pure chance. It, random things could happen. Nothing is for a reason. So it's up to right. us to like hold everything together or fix these things that are wrong, essentially, right? So it's a, what you're getting into here is fundamentally a philosophical underlying disagreement of what, what, like how we define reality, what that is, essentially, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to get, you know, obviously like I could, I'd be happy. And <laughs> <laughs> it's some like crazy ideological, like religious thing. Right. But I, I don't think we need to get into that now, although I do think that ultimately people have to come to terms uh, with these I agree, ideas. we should, should have we that discussion, be, yeah. Yeah, but I think we can bring it back, you know, to a much simpler thing. Let's take a look at what's happening with this case in the New York City subway. What's remarkable is how, I mean, it used to be that the subways were considered the cathedrals of the people. That's what the Soviets called them. This was sort of the ultimate example of something that belonged to the working class, uh, mass transit has always been part of the progressive scheme because this is something that we all own together. It lets us save resources. We can get people from one place to another. And this is sort of the proof of something that we can all take pride in. That was the old narrative. 
And, and, you know, you can think about this. If you go to even Russia today, I mean, the subways are beautiful. Like everything is lined with uh, the marble they took from the Reich Chancellery after World War II. They brought it back and that's where they put it. They didn't put it like a victory monument. They put it in the subways because they thought it was so important. Now, look at the debate that's surrounding this case with this Good Samaritan who subjugated this crazy person and unfortunately killed him. What they're saying is not that this guy did something wrong so much. I mean, they, they are saying that, but they're saying he shouldn't have even intervened to begin with Yeah, because people screaming at you and threatening you is just part of exciting life in the big city. And yeah, the subways are disgusting, but what are you not a tough enough guy to like get off on the idea that the subways are disgusting? Like, what are you yeah. some sort of snowflake who wants like clean mass transportation and safety? I mean, they actually do this, sort of parody of masculinity where suddenly like you're the wimp you're the softy <laughs> if you think it's like weird that in the most famous and wealthy city in the world that the mass transportation looks like a slum and increasingly we're getting this idea that we're not allowed to have nice things that's right it's not that we couldn't have nice things we gotta, we gotta get like, out of our comfort zone gregory that's right. what you're right we get you know if, if you're uncomfortable then you're good that's moral right in a sense yeah, and I think that we should reject this idea that they, at this point, that they have good ideas and they're just naive about the way the world works. It's they no longer want good things. They're actively pursuing entropy and deconstruction yes. yeah. for its own sake because ultimately, what is the only time when we're all equal? When do we finally get egalitarianism? It's when we're all dead. Dead, yeah. And I think that this pursuit of ultimate entropy is now core to what the left is. It's just purely a program of resentment. It's purely a program of deconstruction. I don't believe they have any positive goods, even in their head anymore, because at this point you have places where they have, at least in the American system, close to absolute power in a lot of these urban centers. And what can they think of to do? Just kind of turning up the dial and making things even worse. And then when businesses flee and cities become slums and you have people dying of drug overdoses in the street or actually doing other bodily functions that people shouldn't be doing in public in the street, you know, in once nice cities like San Francisco, what do they say about it? They basically say, well, you have it coming. This is about justice. This is about tearing down white supremacy and capitalism and everything else. Yeah. They no longer even pretend that there's some glorious future waiting over the horizon. I mean, I think that's why you look at like old Soviet propaganda from <laughs> the sixties and seventies, and it looks like insanely right wing compared to what we have today. Right. I mean, say what you will about the tenets of the Soviet Union, dude. At least it was an ethos. Yeah, I don't think they could have put, pulled off all the things that we have today, even right. at that point. You know what I mean? But no, it, it evolves over time. But it's, it, there's many, most of these things, it's just, you know, as you've explained, it's, it's just a foot in through the door, take the censorship issue or the free speech issue, for example, right? It's like they want all these things as long as it benefits them to get the power. And once they have the power, they pull up the ladder and they laugh at you and they say, ha ha. You know, you, and, and I should say, you deserve this, in fact. This is a, this is restorative justice. Uh, we, we're, right. we're still. I, I, maybe on that extent, some of them still might think that they are moral and so to, to inflict pain, punishment and chaos uh, is just uh, restoration in a, in a way, right? I guess the question is, and this may be a bit of mind reading, so it might be futile, but it's something worth thinking about. Do they truly believe at the end of the day that there is some post-racial society where people are going to be equal and working together? 
And it's just a question of kind of a messy transition of restorative justice. And these are some unfortunate things we have to do to get there. I no longer believe that's true. You know, one of the things that well-meaning, if naive conservatives have been saying over and over again is that if you want to get the society where you've moved past race, you got to stop talking about race. And I believe that for a while. And the problem is that even when you have things that are demonstrably superior to what we have now in terms of the way both blacks and whites viewed race relations, according to polls, for example, things were better off 10 years ago, according to most people. Things are now worse off. Race relations have declined dramatically since President Obama was elected. I remember a conservative on the night uh, President Obama was elected said, well, you know, there's one good thing about this. No one will ever call us racist ever again. It's like, well, yeah, how did that work out for us? <laughs> oh, but man. Do you, they don't take the gains that they have and build on it. They, they actually deconstruct it further. And I think at this point, the reason that you have racism's definition being extended so it covers more and more things and so that just about everything people do is considered white nationalist or white supremacist or has some sort of inequality built in that we need to deconstruct all the time. I no longer believe that it's toward a positive goal. I think the resentment is the end game. Like there's no deeper yeah. motive. No. And that the idea of getting off on inflicting punishment on essentially class and racial enemies, they haven't thought about it any more thoroughly than that. There's we there's no mystery about where this is all going. Like we've seen Rhodesia, we've yeah. seen South Africa, we've seen what's happened to a lot of once great cities in our own country. There's no utopia waiting for this, waiting for us. And I don't think they believe there's a utopia waiting for us anymore. I think that the suffering is the point. The humiliation is the point. The cruelty is the point. And I don't think we should give these people any moral sanction whatsoever. It's just a question of how do we develop a morality that is allow us going to break these ideological chains that we've just put ourselves in and how do we get free of these people because exactly. i just don't want to coexist with them anymore. no no we can't we can't uh, whether that's a divorce or uh, you know some kind of uh, <clears throat> you know settling the score here in some kind of capacity but we can't live with these people you know what no. i mean that we can't and it's you, not <laughs> up to us i mean we're not the ones saying this stuff right and, and this is the critical thing is that when people say you know well, what do you believe about this or what are your policies on this and everything else like i've got plenty of ideas and i'm sure other people do too but we're not the ones with power exactly and this is the same thing with yeah. race if somebody says no oh, why are you so concerned about race like i'm not the one who controls the media i'm not the one who controls the education system yeah i'm not the one pushing this stuff all the time and if people say you know oh well race isn't a real thing well if you have a government that lays out all of these policies based on race somebody has to be considered white they have a definition of who's white and mm -hmm. who's not Yep. So when it comes down to it, they clearly believe race is an essential biological characteristic because, I mean, apparently you can change your sex to get into a better victim category if you feel like it, but you can't change your race. Right. Yeah. If, I mean, if Not yet. Could change your, <laughs> why isn't Rachel Dolezal like a civil rights hero? Right. I mean, hell, if, if, if you believe that blacks are actually oppressed, she took oppression on herself rather heroically. Why aren't we building like statues to her? Yeah, right. Dead, she yeah. criticized as like fraud and basically lost her career and everything else. Why? Because at the end of the day, everybody knows that there's status and handouts that come with being part of a certain biological caste, and you can't change your caste that way. Right. You yeah. Know, to get esoteric for a second, we actually 
we kind of do have like a Julius Evola regression of the cast going on in that we actually have a cast system, but it's basically the inverse of what a cast yeah. system would be. Exactly. Whereas instead of like everybody has their place and we're building towards something greater, we have casts where people are just engineered to have permanent resentment against each other and everything is just torn down until there's just nothing left. I think that inversion also proves that proves our point. Well, by the way, it's, it's driving me crazy. What, what's that say? The last part you, again? I said that that picture that you've got for the, oh, the, 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 the <laughs> I'll, take it I'll take it off screen. Uh, yeah, it's a great one. It's your article, the theology of deconstruction, which of course underlines yeah. some of these ideas that we're, we're talking about right now. But no, it's it's it, I see it as a as an organism or, or, or as in, in nature, right? You have things that just come in and they just break things down, right? Whether it's a, an right. animal dying in the woods or even a tree falling, whatever. Over time, there's entropy. They 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 recycle this stuff. Uh, destruction, as you know, is a vital part of life in and of itself. And they're kind of just fulfilling that role right now, whether this is a you know huge natural cycle and we can't really do anything about it, or whether it's just social engineering and people pulling strings behind the scenes. Regardless, we see that it's happening and we and we can understand what direction it's going. It, it, it's, it's, it's just a matter of that. Well, do we fix it or do we help to kind of push it over and start something new? That's yeah, kind of where, where we're at at this point, I think. Right. I mean, I would always say that was kind of the difference between somebody who's conservative and somebody who's right wing. Conservative is going to try to save the existing system from itself. Somebody who's right wing is grounded in certain principles that aren't tied to an existing system or historical circumstance. And so, you know, that which is falling should also be pushed. Yes. Yeah. I think there's an argument that we talk about right and left because a lot of people will say things like, well, you know, these terms don't really have any meaning or anything like that. I think I would call myself an identitarian more than, you know, a right winger. There are certain ideas from particularly the old left that I'm sympathetic to. But I think the way to think about right and left is it's really a question of order versus chaos. I mean, that's yeah. sort of the Ur myth, the Ur mythology. And as with any system, if you have too much order, uh, become stultifying and become static and nothing needed change can't happen. And so you could argue that there is a role for deconstruction, there is a role for chaos, there is a role for what we might call like even the most destructive impulses of the left. But clearly it's gone too far now, because now what we've come to is a situation in which any kind of positive accomplishment is going to be torn down. And this is, again, this is not me saying this. Think of the way, say, the Smithsonian was defining whiteness, where it was basically things like showing up on time or the idea of getting your job done or having any kind of accomplishment or basically any kind of efficient system is pathologized now. And so how can a country continue to operate when these are the ideas that are floating around and being promoted by our elite institutions? And the answer, of course, is just hypocrisy is sort of the grease that keeps everything going. And as I said earlier, I mean, I don't think that hypocrisy is something that we can charge our elites with as as a flaw it's kind of their last saving grace like i don't want them to stop being hypocritical i want them to reflect on the way they actually live is actually closer to the way things should be than this morality they preach about all the time yeah it's just that i think that morality is what allows them to live the way they live and so whether they believe in it or whether they don't believe in it is kind of irrelevant the problem is that everything they're doing and saying at this point is completely self-serving and that there's no greater vision at the end of it. They just want to be king of the ruins.
Yeah, exactly. Um, no, there's no utopia there. There's no aspiration. They, even if they were there for a little bit, they, they've given up on that, I think, for the, for mm-hmm. the most part, uh, generally a long time ago. Uh, what if we... So, yeah, so we go back to that idea. Okay, well, what do we, what do, we do there? Like, do we, work, do we try to change these conservatives to make them see the light, you know, kind of thing? And I think, frankly, I think it's it's slowly and painfully slowly moving yeah. in that direction and it certainly has been i mean it's it's a positive right from from a tucker to a i don't know matt walsh or whatever you know they, they do they bring up these ideas of anti-whiteness and, and they're looking at it we might not agree with their like kind of in conclusion but it's 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 in it's true that they're managed to point out what the problem is many many times right there is a counter um, you know, or a movement against things like uh, diversity and equity inclusion, CRT in schools. Uh, some conservatives have begun, um, you know, operating in the school boards. They, they've started doing a little bit more things. So the, it's it's by far not enough. Uh, and in, and at the end of the day, they might want to have something that we wouldn't kind of agree with, I guess, to a certain extent. But I'm still very encouraged to see that pushback because I, I certainly personally have seen people more or less come over to our side. They realize that it's like, well, there are differences. We have to work with this. Uh, we have to separate, or you know, we 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 can't live like this. And it that's ultimately good because we, we it's not a numbers game. It's not just about how many we have, right? It's about quality as well. It's not just quantity. Uh, but certainly, yeah. the more we are, the better it is. More people are on our side. We then we get powerful. We can do we inflict things politically, etc. Right? Where, where do you stand on this question? I think that in many ways, uh, somebody like say Jared Taylor has is is in a tough position because some of his talking points are now accepted as mainstream uh specifically the idea of things being anti-white that is now a mainstream thing you can talk about that without sounding marginal or crazy or anything like that i mean you see it on twitter all the time and we can talk about this in terms of crime we can talk about this in terms of education policy we can talk about this in terms of the media and it's very hard i mean, I mean at this point if you're denying this people will just laugh at you because, I mean, they're saying, you know, we are doing this to screw over white people. And then if somebody says, hey, why are you doing this? It's very hard for them to say, wow, this is just a crazy conspiracy theory when you can just quote their own words at them. Yeah. That said, what we don't have and what is still verboten and certainly still on Twitter, because, I mean, let's face it, Jared Taylor is still not allowed on Twitter. I know. And yep. he didn't break any of the rules. I mean, <laughs> certainly on uh, even people on our side, I think we would concede that there are people who engage in uh, more abusive speech, shall we say, yeah. and get away with it more than he would. Yeah. But what is still the third rail, the thing you absolutely cannot do, is you cannot be pro-white. You're allowed to say that things are anti-white. You are not allowed to be pro-white. Right. That cost you everything and that is still true within the conservative movement and it's a very strange thing when you really think about it because what is a country other than the people and you to be a a mainstream american conservative you you have to believe you have to believe that some documents some people drew up a few centuries ago are the seat of our greatness but the people who actually lived in these places, who fought the wars, who developed these institutions, who built the country, they had absolutely nothing to do with it. And if you had brought in an entirely different group of people and just given them the same documents somehow and the same system of government, everything would have turned out pretty much the same. Mm. And this is basically true in every European country at this point, where they're bringing in people to, let's be blunt about this, replace the existing population. And the conservatives, at least, will say, well, nothing is going to change. 
I mean, the left is very clear about what's going to happen. They understand at least that there are going to be consequences. Again, the woke are more correct. But these conservatives tell us that nothing is going to change and that everything is going to be the same because they're just going to assimilate to something. Well, we know that's not true. Ultimately, culture does not come from culture is not just this thing that is artificially created. It, it emerges from the genius of the people and the people come first. And this idea that you can just create a culture and impose it on everyone, I don't think it's true. You have to have a race first. You have to have a self-conscious people. And out of that comes culture. And when you don't have that, you get this kind of anti-culture that is circulating now where everything is built on resentment and self-hatred. Uh, one of the things that in Heather McDonald's new book is she talks about how the push for equity and the frankly anti-white tendencies in culture and in the media and everything else may be one of the reasons why so many whites are turning to what have been called deaths of despair, uh, drug overdoses, alcoholism, suicide. And I think there's something to that. I mean, we, we're so immersed in it, we don't think about how crazy it really is, but what does it do psychologically to a young white kid where everything he sees from the programs on television to the little videos he has on the internet to the books he's getting at like three or four years old, like anti-racist baby or something like that, to what he's taught in school is that he is uniquely evil, that everything his people ever created was evil and that he can't get out of it because again, you're not allowed to change your race. So what kind of psychological torture are we really inflicting on the majority of this country and why is it? that it's seen as illegitimate to say we want something different. I mean, to me, this is a kind of psychological slavery more extreme than just about anything that's ever existed in history. Yeah, yeah. I can tolerate somebody with a gun saying you have to do these things because I'm in charge and I get to say how things are. I may not like it, but I at least can understand that. Right. But yeah. when somebody says you have to accept this garbage society and actually, this garbage society is good for you because it's all you deserve. Well, I don't have to go along with this. And if there's a morality that says, well, actually, you do have to go along with it, it's very hard for me not to just dismiss that as cynical and self-serving and something that's just being put forward by the elite to justify their position. Mm -hmm. Getting back to what we talked about with, with order and chaos, I mean, I think that a lot of the philosophy of deconstruction and critical theory is actually true. I think these are tools that we should use. It's just the left never turns them on themselves. No, it's true. Um, and, and uh, you know, that's why I'm like, we know we know what's coming, I think, in a way here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know where this yeah, is no going, you know what I mean? No. We've, we've seen, I mean, South Africa is the end game, right? Yeah. And we see how that's playing out. And this was a country that used to be a civilized country, that used to be a first world country. And what's really remarkable about this is when you look at the debates in the 80s and 90s, all the arguments are the same. Nothing has changed. You still have the same old conservative goobers talking about how, oh, we're going to have a colorblind society and everyone's just going to make money and it's all about the economy and everything else. And of course, they didn't get any of this. The economy didn't get better. They can't even keep the power on. And the society is more dominated by race than ever. But nobody learns anything from any of this. Uh, certainly the collapse of Rhodesia into Zimbabwe should have been sort of the clarion call for the idea that our rulers don't really know what they're doing. Uh, let's not forget that the reason Mugabe took over Zimbabwe is not because 
the white leadership was so opposed to the idea of black majority rule. It was because they were opposed to Mugabe specifically. Mm. Uh, the late queen, Elizabeth II, in one of the very few political interventions she ever did, really came down hard on the idea of handing over power to him. Uh, actually pushed Margaret Thatcher, much against her own will, into adopting such a policy. Well, things played out pretty much exactly, if not worse, as the far right, quote unquote, predicted. But did anybody learn anything from this? Mm -hmm. Were any lessons drawn? Were anybody, was anybody punished? No. Everybody just kind of moved on and said, like, well, this is how things are. Well, frankly, I'm not willing to move on. Like, this is the way things are. This is the way things are going to be. There's no mystery about what's coming. There's no debate to be had. There's no discussion to be had in good faith. Yeah, and that's where, we, that's we, where we're at. Exactly, and we come back to that point. I've mentioned it a few times in other shows, but like this idea that, I mean, it, it's great, right? Like, but you know, conservative, whether it's even Con Inc. now or whatever, but they have this. It's built on outrage and, and opposition, right? But that's not a that's not a position. They're not yeah. pro white. They're yeah. they're just There's, exposing anti white hate, right? There is a certain. This this is a very important point, and it's we have to be very precise about the way we talk about it. There's a certain tension, and I say this as somebody who worked within the conservative movement for a long time. I'll tell a quick story, but. I don't want this to come off as a smear against former colleagues because I never got treated poorly by any of the places I worked at or anything like that. But when I was running Youth for Western Civilization, which was kind of the group I had years ago, what we did, it was not a white nationalist group, uh, regardless of what the media said. Basically, we were opposed to multiculturalism, mass immigration. We were taking the conservative movement's line on these issues. And we would get a lot of press coverage and a lot of outrage that the conservative movement could make money off of. But they were also very careful to make sure that we didn't really go anywhere with it. We didn't really talk about solutions. We mm. didn't say that, well, white people should stand up for themselves, that everything was entirely negative, basically, that the left just shouldn't be doing this. And the problem is that the people who make the most money and the people who bring in the most attention are the people who talk about, shall we say, the spiciest issues. But if they cross a certain line, they lose everything overnight. Mm. And I mean, Tucker Carlson, I think, would be a good example of this, where he brought in the most ratings. But at the end of the day, he was probably a net loss for Fox because of what he was costing them in advertising. Mm -hmm. mistake, Fox is going to make more money now that he's gone now. One of the big lies that we have on the American right that I think less people believe in now, but a disappointingly large amount still at least say they believe in it, is this idea of the marketplace of ideas. Now, maybe we had that once, but I think the deplatforming that's occurred since 2016 and 2017 is so extreme that it really caused the legitimacy of the entire democratic system into question. Because right now, anyone who's present with any kind of following on any mainstream platform is essentially being pushed from the top down there it's not true to talk about somebody having an organic audience it's not true to talk about somebody just cultivating a following because all of these people yourself included have essentially been banned from mainstream platforms and so when people talk about like leftist influencers on youtube or tiktok or anything like that they're not really any different in any essential way from any propagandist in any other authoritarian regime, because every single one of them is there only because they were allowed 
to be there. If we had something like existed in 2016, 2017, then we could talk about the marketplace of ideas or people discussing things or who's more popular. But right now, everything is essentially fake. Yeah. And the way this has a, a really poisonous impact on the American right is that there's a tendency, I find, for people to sort of dunk on those who have been purged or deplatformed and sort of mock them because like, oh, they're not bringing in a certain amount of money. They don't have as big a following anymore. They've kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Well, that's happened because the left-wing power structure essentially crushed them. And just because they did it to them doesn't mean they can't do it to you tomorrow. And so what are you really celebrating? But at the same time, your position sort of depends on being the permissible alternative to the unrespectable elements that have been purged on the left. So when you look at guys like, say, Ben Shapiro, I don't mean to go after him specifically, but just he's the first example that comes to mind. The guy who benefits the most from deplatforming is somebody like Ben Shapiro. It's because true. Essentially yeah. wipes out the competition. Yeah. And we can all think of certain people on the quote unquote far right, uh, certain names, I'm sure they're all coming to mind, who were popular a few years ago, who have essentially been cast into the outer darkness. And they would have been mainstream. Uh, certainly financially, they would have been well established and they would have had a large audience had free speech norms remained in force and they didn't. And the fact that they didn't, I think, should lead all of us to be pretty cautious about talking about who's extreme and who's mainstream or what it really takes to be communicating to the normies or anything like that, mm -hmm. because at this point, the entire discussion is so heavily curated and moderated that in some sense, it's entirely fake. I think that the conservative movement is in a very tough position because anyone of any prominence is pretty much by definition only there because they're a beneficiary of deplatforming and censorship. But the only way we're ever going to stop deplatforming and censorship is if those people speak out against it. And of course, they have no material reason to do so. So, yeah, yeah, well, that's where we're at. I yeah, mean, no, I, it's absolutely. I mean, you, you're right. Um, Yet at the same time, and I mean, you recognize that too. Oh, no, I know, of course, exactly. And uh, yeah, and to me, it's just kind of also the way I view it personally, it's it just putting off the inevitable. We're, we're going to get there, whether these are through new platforms or whether through other people pick up the baton and drive these talking points further, because at the end of the day, I don't care. I don't care who says these things as long as it's being said, you know what I mean? In the wider yeah, uh, culture and, and, and mainstream and things like that, obviously. Uh, I'd love to be to be there. I, I think we still have some part of it, but but yes, we don't have Ben Shapiro's platform or, you know, you know, it's like that. Um, but but I think we've still, still seen, how do I put this? We've still seen the discourse moving, uh, continuing moving to the right, if that's the right term. There's still, a, yeah. it hasn't just completely died down. We've actually seen a lot of people right pushing up. back and, and still you yeah. know, getting angry about what's happening. You know, I mean, and I, I, I still look, I, it could just be that the left then is so insane. It's so crazy out there that these people don't have, they kind of have to stay relevant too, right? In a sense. So, they, so that, it does move that in that direction. That, that it may not really want to talk about uh, specifically issues talking about race, sexuality. Uh, back when I was doing campus organization, I mean, these are the only issues anybody cares about. What the conservative movement wants you to talk about is like, you know, the deficit. Economic policy, like yeah. But nobody nobody cares about that when you're 21 years old. 
And especially when there's a lot of money and power at stake, when you look at the way campus politics works, it's all about race and identity and sexuality and things like that. So the conservative movement to stop, to stoke outrage, to get eyeballs has to talk about these issues, but they also can't tell anybody what to do other than keep watching and maybe send me money. And if you started saying, well, maybe we should take these kinds of actions to solve the problem, or maybe we should change our ideas so we can more effectively fight these things, well, then you're not a true conservative anymore. So this balancing act is always there. And you're always going to be fighting essentially with one hand tied behind your back. And also at the end of the day, you're at the sufferance of leftists who allow you on these platforms. I mean, yeah. Let's face it, if Matt Walsh has got a certain platform, he has lost his platform on YouTube to some extent. But if he started, if he moved past saying that things are anti-white and started talking about the need to be pro-white or at least not self-hating, uh, I don't know if you would even be allowed to stay on Twitter. I mean, after all, Jared Taylor's not. So there is some growth in the American right. You have people talking about, say, Sam Francis's concept of anarcho-tyranny, even citing him by name. That's a victory. But there is a time limit here. And there does come a point when the demographic situation is so bad that there's not much we can really do, at least in terms of elections or winning an absolute majority in the United States. And in my darker moments, I think that a lot of the conservatives know this and they're sort of just like running out the clock. They're saying what they have to in order to maintain their audience, but they're not interested in actually solving the problem. And they also know at a certain point talking about these issues will be sort of pointless because the, the numbers just won't be there. But what do they care? They've made their money and they're living in their gated community. And that's the end of it. That's what I want to pick up here. We're going to take a short break uh, and talk more in the second hour about this. Just, just this idea of yeah, we, yeah, solutions, repatriation, white nationalism, you know, these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, because there's an, obviously there's a knee-jerk reaction, right, by conservatives. and it, But but it's just yeah. like, well, what do we do about it then, right? There's an important right, thing here. Right, right, right. Um, Tell us where people can find your stuff. I know you have an upcoming. You're speaking at the is the next next, next Amron uh, conference. So give us yeah, some plugs here, uh, Gregory. Um, that'll be at their regular location in Tennessee. I would encourage everyone to go to amren.com and go to the next American Renaissance conference. I'll be speaking there in terms of what I think should be done, uh, what I think the end goal is, and it's going to be I think a pretty significant conference because I think we are at a turning point here where. We all know the problem and we've kind of done the job as best we can with the resources we have and the platforms we have in terms of education. I mean, I can only write the same article so many times about, look at these crazy double standards. You know, I'm getting kind of sick. <laughs> and I think it but, needs I think to, this is the thing, it needs to come to, it, 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 it needs to, to be there it. because there's new people yeah. all the time, but there's I get, but I get your frustration. Like, yeah. Anyone, anyone who's reading Amren regularly, it's like, yeah, dude, we know like, you get it. Now what? And yeah. that's what I want to, talk about but right. we have to obviously education will always be there but there has to be a positive end and i think that's what really separates us from the conservatives because we we have sort of silently and without people really noting like won a great victory within the conservative movement in terms of mainstreaming these ideas but if it doesn't lead to anything it's kind of pointless uh, Amren.com, I think, is the best source as far as talking about these racial issues and I think at the conference as far as what's going to be done. I would also, yes, uh, VDare.com, we've got a conference coming up in uh, in June uh, at the Castle in Berkeley Springs. Nice. Uh, you may 
wondering why I'm James Kirkpatrick at VDare.com and Gregory Hood at Amran. It's a long story. Uh, some people know me as Kevin Deanna. I mean, I, I don't even know all the different names I've had at this point. That's that's a story in itself. I, I've already been doxed to hell and back. I don't care what anybody calls me. I just go by Gregory Hood just because that's what most people know me as. Yeah, yeah. But VDare.com and Amran.com are the best two places right now. And then I... I've occasionally written at countercurrents.com, counter-currents.com, and I should be speaking at an event uh, with Greg uh, sometime in June. So I'll keep you updated on that as well. All right, great. Um, yeah, definitely. There's some uh, great uh, things coming up here. Uh, Jared Taylor's conference, I was there last last year then. Yes, that's right. Like October, November, was it? Um, something like that. Oh, yeah. actually, September, yeah. I think. That it was, was anyway. great. That was a great speech. Yeah, it was, oh, th well, thank you. you. You're as well. It was great meeting you there, by the way. Uh, Jared is always such a lovely and wonderful host and a nice guy, and he's so good at what he does and stuff like that. I encourage everyone to support uh, uh, you know, Jared Taylor and go to an Ameren conference if you haven't been before. And if you have been before, <laughs> go, go again, because yeah, it supports again. their work and stuff like that, too. It's, it's just good to get that turnout. Uh, VDare.com, as you mentioned, as well. And then people can follow you. You're on uh, Twitter. At uh, yeah, Vidar James, James K. K. Yeah, I'm I'm still on Twitter somehow. Me too. And, it's uh, one one place we've never we're never banned from, which is you know fed, fed confirmed. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, right. Knock on wood. But that's the, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I've never gotten anything uh, any trouble on Twitter, but I also tend not to argue with people so much. Which same I, here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Same here. Banned, so yeah. <laughs> and then I'm also on Gab as Greg Hood. I think it's just Greg Hood. Uh, all one word. So uh, those are really the only two social platforms I use with any consistency. Uh, I will be doing a lot more in terms of media operations in the next two months, uh, but that's something people are just going to have to stay tuned for uh, because moving and, and setting up a new studio and things like that. But I mean, we're in a, we're in a good position. It's just, I think one of the things that I'd like people to take away is that you should never feel discouraged when people say like, oh, you know, this is kind of marginal or you don't have a mass audience and everything else. After 2015 and 2016, we know we have a mass audience. We yeah. know that we would have the majority of people, at least the majority of white people. It's just they had to resort to force to prevent this message from getting out. And I think that may have worked for them in the short term. I don't think it'll work for them in the long term. But I think what they've sacrificed with these actions is their democratic legitimacy. And if they ever talk about our democracy or the free market or the market of ideas or people making up their own minds, these are just lies and they can be dismissed out of hand. We're past all that now. That's right. All right. We'll pick this uh, right back up after a short break. Continue with uh, Gregor Hood. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll see you on the other side. Part two is coming up. We're going to talk more about what we do, some of the solutions. How do we get uh, conservatives to uh, see some of these things? Uh, even if we can't, uh, is it worth pursuing that? What kind of areas should we work on? Politics? Should we try to build local community? We'll uh, discuss some of these ideas. Gregory has, a, I think, a good handle on things uh, generally and a good uh, good strategy, good outline for, for where to uh, kind of go from here. Not everyone might uh, agree with this uh, conclusion, but uh, it's still uh, very important to, uh, to listen to this. We're going to have some sanity in this picture and try to understand where to go from here we, everybody can understand the problem they can look around they can see what's happening but it's clear obviously i think mo as most of you guys know uh that uh, normie conservative doesn't hold any of these uh solutions in fact in some regards we have to do some of the things at least that they kind of uh, go against what about uh repatriation or are we allowed to restore some of the damage that have been done towards our civilization and nations and anyway, we'll talk more about that 
If you want to join us, part two is available right now at RedEyesMembers.com. You can also sign up at Subscribestar.com slash RedEyes and Odyssey.com forward slash at RedEyesTV. Uh, that's an option for you guys. All the uh, content's going up there as well, the members content. Uh, but at RedEyesMembers.com, you can sign up for a month-to-month -month recurring. It's only 10 bucks a month. It helps to support the show as well. You can also sign up for a longer subscription if you want. Uh, that's a way to save a little bit of money. Uh, if you get a two-year, for example, it's almost, uh, I think, close to 40% off. So that's a good deal for you guys. If you're uh, interested in that, you can also uh, get some different uh, tiers in terms of uh, support. We have a plus tier for those of you who want to do a little bit extra. And then we have a producer and executive producer tier. In fact, we've just gotten an editor board thanks to you. We appreciate you guys. Can't do this without you. If you want to get some resources our way, we would love to hire some more people, admin people, people who can help us book in, uh, those who can actually do some of the uh, background stuff so we can focus on producing more content. So thank you so much to our executive producers today. T. Lothrop Stoddard, V. Miller, Resin Revolt, Good Luck Lab, Jake, Red Pill Rundown, Chalky Milk, French 47, Mark Smith, No One Jeebs, President Ubunga, Mongoose, William Fox, Angry White Soccer Mom, The Second Wanderer, Operation Werewolf, The Ride Never Ends, Francis Parker Yaki, Dill Bob, Last Place Simp, Joseph Hart, Purple Haze, and JP. Thank you guys. Also, thanks to our producers, Mr. Walker 696, Yu Hanson, Leroy Dumont, Snork Pop, Eyes Open, Mr. Lemry, Yuri New, Obadiah Hexwell, Single Action Army, and George Porch. Thank you guys. We appreciate you. As an executive producer, you get a little bit more input as well. We want to hear from you guys. Do you have guest suggestions? Do you have topics that you want us to cover during our live streams, etc.? A little bit more engagement uh, that way as well. And by the way, if you want to have your uh, picture updated, if you currently are an executive producer uh, and you want to have actually your profile uh, pic or avatar or something like that, uh, just send this, send it to us, redeyesatprotomail.com. Uh, let us know your username and we'll swap that out. All right. Thank you again, guys. We appreciate all of you. So join us for the second part right now together with Gregory Hood. We'll see you guys on the other side of this break.